friends, and welcome to World Build with us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Courtney Staples. On today's episode, we are very excited to be interviewing uh, Six of Hounds. That would be a collaboration between author and game designer Lizzie Stark and game designer Jason Morningstar. Uh, There is so much cool shit within this interview. I'm very excited to get to it. But before we do, remember that if you want us to build your world, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, click on the link, follow the instructions, and within a reasonable amount of time, we'll be building your world. If you want to follow us on social media, we're over on Twitter at Let's World Build. If you want to come and join our Discord and chat about world building, anything at all, by all means, click on the link in the description. And if you're feeling particularly generous or you just want access to our sweet, sweet patron-only episodes, there's a link in the description of this very episode for our Patreon We can go and give us some money. With all of that out of the way, all of the shilling is done, we're going to get right into the interview. Hello and welcome. Today we are joined by the owners and creators of Six of Hounds. That would be author and game designer Lizzie Stark, as well as game designer Jason Morningstar. Uh, Thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Now, for those of us who might not know too much about you, what can you tell us about yourselves? I think, uh, how about if I introduce Lizzie and Lizzie can introduce me? Sure. That sounds really fun too. (laughs) So Lizzie Stark is a author, game designer, and experience designer. Uh, Her work includes books like uh, Leaving Mundania and uh, Pandora's DNA. And in in game design, uh, she's uh, well-known for uh, games that have uh, won the top prize at Festival, which is a very prestigious LARP contest, uh, as well as uh, a variety of other game-related projects. How'd I do, Lizzie? Oh, you did great. You did great. But you did forget to mention my forthcoming book, Egg, a dozen overtures, which is oh, for Pete's <laughs> sake, I, I am so sorry. <laughs> um, and allow me to introduce Jason Morningstar of Bully Pulpit Games. Um, Jason is a designing tour de force of everything role playing, um, tabletop, LARP. I'm pretty sure he's designed some card games, uh, too, but he's probably best known for his work designing Fiasco. Um, the indie RPG that lets you play a disaster movie in about two hours with your friends. And he is also an award-winning game designer. I believe he's won the Diana Jones Award. Is that right, Jason? Yeah, I won it twice. You won it twice. Um, and probably, uh, probably some other awards. But I just think of him as a uh, brilliant collaborator and um, and a delightful person. I really I really like him, and that's why that's why we collaborate together. <laughs> it's true. We are dear friends, and we get along great. And we I think we design great too, which is nice. Yes, very much so. Absolutely, and we're we're definitely going to get into that. But before we do, uh, I believe that Daniel and you, Lizzie, have a little bit of history. So Daniel, why don't you take us through a little bit of that? Yeah, so we go way back to when Lizzie and I, well, we were in grad school together and she was running um, Fringe Magazine, which was a literary journal um, at Emerson College. And um, 
I just want to talk about my favorite experience ever where I really got to meet Lizzie, but in her early like LARP scholarship, um, she was, she decided to run a LARP uh, in Cape May, New Jersey, specifically as part of the research for her book that was coming out, Leaving Mundania. And we went to this um, giant old house where she had set up this crazy um, Cthulhu RPG LARP experience um, where there was cults and people were betraying each other. And it was like really amazing because it was one of those moments where we really lost ourselves in RPGs. And I didn't know this was possible because I had never done a LARP before. So like my opening question for you, Lizzie, taking you all the way back to LARP land is what originally got you into LARPs? And in terms of RPGs, like how did your background in journalism affect that or drive that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I got interested in LARP while I was in grad school um, with you. <laughs> uh, you might recall uh, somebody else who was at that LARP, Sarah Miles, uh-huh. who's a friend yes. and fellow editor on Fringe with me. And um, she had a roommate who was a LARPer. And she was like explaining to us all of the cool, uh, cool stuff that her roommate was doing. And she wrote a story about it. And I just kind of got interested. And then when I was looking to do a book, I pitched, uh, I pitched LARP as like a book idea to get into this book writing class um, when I was Mm -hmm. later when I was in journalism school. And it got me into the class. And then I just got fascinated. Uh, for me, I think it's really an extension of my interest in experimental narrative, which I had, you know, even back in my days as an as an MFA student. Um, I've always loved theater and kind of the people who are present around theater. And so for me, that was really my window into the world. Like, what if you could do theater, but you don't have to do public speaking or remember any lines. I mean, uh-huh. I, I feel like that's mm-hmm. kind of the core of a good LARPing experience. Um, <laughs> and I love that you were there for my very first LARP. I feel like I've learned a lot about facilitation and design since then. But uh, I remain proud of that experience because I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I tried really hard and I brought in the experts to help me run that game. Uh, a collection of people who I had been interviewing and reporting on for quite a while. Uh, I guess the other part about the question was how my journalism background fits into this. Yeah. Um, And that is just that you can learn about anything. You can become an expert in anything by watching and with your, you know, observer hat on and um, by interviewing people who know what they're doing and people are experts in their own lives. Like the LARPers know what they like. The designers know what their design philosophy is. And so if you stick around and listen attentively enough, you know, you can figure it out. Um, And that's also part of like the aesthetic of LARP too, I guess, is that we're making this experience um, for ourselves together. So that I really like that kind of um, that sort of indie zine aesthetic to it. It's really interesting, especially to hear about that your first LARP was this sort of house Cthulhu cult experience, because when I hear LARP, I always think of like people running around in fields with foam swords. I don't <laughs> I don't quite imagine this more intimate setting. Um, and I'm curious, like, how has that sort of developed into how you design games now? Well, uh, when I made that Cthulhu LARP experience, I had not yet um, played in a lot of uh, 
I would say like intimate LARPs. I had done the mm-hmm. running around with foam swords <laughs> in the woods. Not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It has its own appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, a moment of transition was when I went to uh, the Nordic countries and went to the convention Knudepunkt there, which is like a meeting place for people from the Nordic countries and around the world who are doing kind of rules light LARP experiences. Um, and there I played in, they have a, a big long tradition of making games like this. Um, mm-hmm. And I should also point out, there is also a tradition of kind of chamber LARP experiences here in the States out of the Intercon convention in New England and some other places. Um, but that was in Scandinavia was where I experienced my first uh, kind of real intimate LARP. You know, you can have a great time spending a weekend in character in the woods, but you can also mm-hmm. achieve that level of immersion in four hours in street clothes in a classroom with you know, uh, one to seven other people. Um, or naked in a closet crying. Yes, the immersion <laughs> closet, the finished immersion closet. Um, so that's where a lot of my design philosophy came out of, kind of like the American need for structure and clarity and like the Nordic love of playing to lose and of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, small game uh, intensity, I guess. And that actually helps us transition over to Jason. So Jason, one thing that is uh, thematically consistent throughout your games is a lack of a GM or a a story keeper or something like that. So uh, kind of following up on what Lizzie was saying with like a, a mixture of two styles, how would you describe uh, your RPGs, your LARPs in that kind of similar vein? And if you want to give us an origin story that might help us along the way, that would be great too. Sure. I, uh, I really strongly feel that games will, will tell you what they want to be and sort of what they need. And one of the, one of the things that you can listen for and that a game will tell you is what kind of structure it needs, what kind of authority or credibility do the participants need for the experience. And quite often, if you ask that question, honestly, the game will tell you it needs to be egalitarian everybody needs to have the same amount of authority. Uh, and then, you know, you're looking at a game that doesn't have a, an asymmetric level of power at the table. It's not always the case. Uh, I certainly design games that have a facilitator, but it's an assumption that I question. And Lizzie and I often butt heads about this because uh, I think I come from one extreme uh, where my default assumption is let's not have anybody that's sort of pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes that's a good choice and sometimes it's not a good choice. Uh, So, so that's kind of like has influenced my design sensibility. Uh, And in terms of an origin story, I've been a a tabletop role-playing game player and maker uh, since that's been a possibility in the world. Uh, So pretty much all my life. And I was introduced to LARP in a very similar way to, to Lizzie uh, I'd never been to a weekend boffer LARP in, in my case, but I was meeting a lot of people uh, in tabletop design circles who were in Nordic tabletop and LARP design spaces. And the questions that they were asking were really mind-blowing because their assumptions were very different from what a North American tabletop player or maker was thinking about. And so I made friends with those folks and then got to visit with them 
and play with them. Uh, and it was very illuminating. So I certainly came at it from the point of view of someone who was making things for the tabletop and then realizing that uh, there was so much interesting potential and such a fertile design space in live action play uh, that my work grew from there, I think. Absolutely. And I think that that really shines through in your work on Six of Hounds. You know, when you look at a game like Grandpa, you can see the egalitarian, like everyone gets to play Grandpa. I love, I love that that's like a tenet within that kind of system. And then the other thing that I see that is a consistent theme throughout all your work, both you and Lizzie's, is this theme of like really deep intimacy that is, it is not about a massive sprawling system or world. It is really about the interpersonal relationships between a small group of characters. And I would just love if you or Lizzie could talk about that and, and how important that is to you within your game philosophy and game design. What do you think, Lizzie? Well, uh, I think it really has to do with what both you and I like in games. Um, and this kind of goes to the, uh, you know, facilitator, no facilitator question as well. Jason and I, we've played a lot together with other people. And I don't, I don't know about you, Jason, but my peak game experiences are uh, when I have deep emotional intimacy with my co-players, when I trust them. And because I trust them, we can go to some places that are interesting to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I, uh, when you started that question, I was like, well, the answer is trust, right? We, we uh, trust the people who are going to be playing our games. Uh, we want them to bring their best to it in a good faith way. And uh, we can design around that. Uh, which means that there are big open spaces in our designs that you fill in with your own sort of collective genius. And I mm -hmm. think that's a very healthy, healthy way to approach game design. Following up on concepts for GMless games. So like in the RPG space, we see so few of those games out there that really do it well, um, that, that are like obvious to everyone. So I would love to know, um, you know, in your essay, the collected uh, essays Beyond the Game Master, um, you and the co-writers in there, you wrote about um, what are some of the principles or commonalities in GMless games. And I would just like for our listeners who, you know, mostly play a lot of you know, mainstream games, like what are, what are the principles in a GMless game? Like what are the expectations and how is that different than what you'd see in your regular TTRPG? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier about apportioning credibility and authority around, around the table. And I think uh, all the pieces have to be there. So if you're playing D&D, &D, the, the dungeon master has a very specific set of responsibilities and there are things over which they have authority and there are concepts around which they have credibility that other people don't have by mutual agreement. And that authority stops uh, at the edge of the character sheet in the case of D&D. &D. But the, the important point is that it doesn't have to be that way. There are different ways that you can structure that. Uh, and a GM-less game or a GM-full game, where basically everyone is a, is a, is a game master, uh, just rejuggles that in a way that's appropriate for that particular game. So in my game Fiasco, everybody has the same ability to interact, uh, the same authority over who gets to say what and when, and the game provides a structure that moves things along in the way that a facilitator would. 
but there are lots of ways to organize that. There, there are tons of different ways, and it's a fun design process to think about what's best for a particular uh, project. And I could give other examples if, if you want them. Sure, and I'd love to hear from Lizzie too. Yeah, I want to add on, on just one thing. I want to underscore something Jason said, which is that it gives everybody responsibility for what's happening at the table as well. And that level of responsibility is also a valuable design tool. You know, sometimes you can get into a dynamic as a facilitator where like the facilitator is taking on a lot of the responsibility of scheduling and making the fiction uh happen, making the fiction come alive for the players. And when you distribute that responsibility to the participants, um, often their imaginations will come alive in a way that's different. And just on a social level, I think it uh, it distributes kind of ownership of the group very equitably. And that also comes out in play. Mm -hmm. Jason and I spent a lot of time talking about uh, like group design and how to make sure everybody is getting equal um, equal screen time or kind of mm. getting a, an equal shot at having a great experience and distributing GM functions is like a sneaky way to help uh, support equity. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned grandpa earlier and that's, that game is a really good example of that because everybody gets to play the this irascible, cranky old ghost who's really a facilitator of play because all, the, all, all of grandpa's living relatives have issues with one another and things that they want to resolve. And when you're grandpa, your, your entire job is to push those buttons and everybody gets to do that. So it, it's, a, it's a way of distributing that facilitator role in a way that's super fun and that works really well in context. So that's a, that's a good example of, how, of exactly what you were just talking about, Lizzie. Would you say um, if Six of Hounds, is that like the common denominator in the design process or the concept behind the collaboration, or is there something else fundamental to it? Um, we're making games we want to play with our friends. Huh. Uh, and we're often imagining, I think this is fair to say, Lizzie, that we're imagining our dear friends playing our games as we make them and sort of using them as stand-ins. And we're like, well, would this person enjoy playing this with us uh, as, a, as sort of a benchmark for the work that we're doing? So like it's selfish, it's enlightened self-interest. Yeah, I'd say that's absolutely right. Um, I'd also say that this collaboration is focused on uh, joy, like uh, games that bring people joy, games that are fun, uh, which is not necessarily true of everything that we've designed um, together uh, or separately. <laughs> um, and so I think that's distinguishing, you know, we're at a moment now where uh, the world feels like it's falling apart a little bit and mm. people need um, meaningful, joyful experience now more than ever. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I had noticed um, looking at the Six of Hounds kind of spread of games that you've created a couple of games that are actually meant specifically for remote play over video chat. I imagine that the whole pandemic has had a bit of an impact on on why you went in the direction. I'd be curious to um, to learn more about the design process there. Like, how does that differ from designing a standard in person game? It's a really good question, and it does uh, impact every aspect of play. Uh, it adds friction in certain areas, and mm -hmm. it makes certain things easier and more accessible. Uh, and we definitely made a very conscious pivot and recognized that for the foreseeable future, at least, we absolutely needed to accommodate remote play in anything we did. 
it, it's it's just uh, it's the way things are. Um, and that's a you know it's a design constraint, but I think ultimately a very positive one because it it's going to allow more people to engage with our work. Do you have any thoughts on that, Lizzie? Yeah, I think I mean everything Jason said. Um, I think that there are some interesting affordances that the digital platform offers you. It offers the potential for like asynchronous play. It makes play that uses uh, like text a lot mm-hmm. easier. And so our early experiments in this format um, were playing with those aspects more. We designed a game called uh, For Lovers <laughs> about people seeking love while they're in quarantine. Um, and most of the game is conducted first on text message, then on just audio chat, and then for the for the start and end of the game, we have people on um, video call. Interesting. So it really is quite different to design. You also have to design around like technical problems. Mm-hmm. You know, a two hour game might take two and a half hours because you're going to spend the first <laughs> thirty minutes yep. trying to figure out how to get on the Zoom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were there any, so like in, in, in going through that kind of design for remote play, um, did you find that things were gained or lost in the experience in terms of, you know, like when you're actually creating the experience, like what it felt like to be in it versus doing it in person? Yeah, I think we've both had the opportunity to uh, play some games in person and uh, remotely, and you can really tell the difference. Uh, I much prefer to be in in a space with other human beings uh, and seeing all the phatic communication and all the kinesthetics that are kind of stripped away and are difficult to replicate uh, in remote play or play via video. So like in some ways, that's kind of old school because there are lots of people who are very comfortable in a native digital environment. Uh, and in some ways, I think we're catching up. But, you know, it's a matter of... Uh, both, you know, honoring our own preferences, but making sure that we are aware of the environment we're designing into. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the main things that you lose is you lose the physicality of the experience. Mm-hmm. So as a facilitator or game organizer, that means you don't really have control over the physical space that your participants are in, which takes away a big set of tools. It's harder to Uh, control the lighting, for example, or control Mm -hmm. the sound or control whether your players are going to get distracted. And so you have to design to that, to those elements. And then there is, I think, some exciting frisson of just being in a place with other human beings in person. You can read their body language differently. Um, And of course, we lose the opportunity to interact physically. Sometimes in a role-playing game, having your character put their hand on my character's shoulder means more than, you know, a thousand words. Um, And so I miss those parts of the experience. And then too, you can't really design around physical tokens as much. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, but you've got the problem of like, you know, my participants are in five different states. How do I get them all (laughs) the cards they need to play Mm -hmm. this game? (laughs) <laughs> there are some interesting uh, affordances that uh, make it that you can actually take advantage of. So like in our game Conifer, uh, we want you to use like Wonder Me or uh, Spatial Chat, uh, something where there's a visual representation of where the individual participants are in a space that's been defined. And uh, that works great because 
in, in a regular game, you might be able to divide your players uh, in a space that has three different rooms so they can have private conversations, mm-hmm. but you, but you don't necessarily know who is where, whereas uh, in Conifer, you always know who's in the break room, who's in the uh, telephone exchange and who's out on the street, even if you don't know what they're talking about. There's also a wonderfully subtle way to just check in with uh, players about how their time is or if they need anything or to give them secrets if you want to. And that is the DM. <laughs> Direct message in this case. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I had to think about that for a moment too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Not the dungeon master. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up conifer because I'm so interested in your thought process and your decision-making process when it comes to some of the scenarios that you build games around. I mean, conifer is about the 1970s junta in Bolivia and Jason, I know that you've done um, a game on the night witches, which is a, uh, an all female pilot group from world war two in Russia. Yeah. Uh, and I am the resident history nerd. So I love seeing these moments of extreme human experiences in games, and that's been gamified. So I'd love for you all to talk a little bit about your decision process and like, are you just hunting for those unique experiences? Uh, What do you look for when you're kind of plumbing the research? Or is this all just kind of random and there's just like, hey, let's just, this is kind of just a fancy that you're following. I'd love to hear about that thought process. Lizzie, can you tell the story of how we ended up making Conifer? Because I think it ties into what we talked about earlier about love and trust and designing for others. Yeah, yeah. So when Jason and I start designing a game, usually we make a list of some of the things that are interesting to us right now. And often we make a list of like things we haven't tried before. And so I would say it started with a list. We decided that we wanted to try a spy game. It sounded exciting and fun. We had Mm -hmm. never tried it. Um, And we were, I guess we were looking at our list and then we were looking at the group of friends we wanted to build a bespoke experience for. We were thinking about what they might enjoy. Um, And once we had settled on spy and once we had gotten buy-in from our friends, we made like a little Google uh, doodle, like a poll. And we asked them a couple questions, you know, like, are we doing a very serious spy drama? Are we soldier, tailored, tinker, spy? I think that's the right order of words. Or are we doing, you know, uh, Austin Powers? A little difference there, yeah. And so we got some input from them. And then based on what they said on the questionnaire, we built the game for them. And uh, one of the questions we asked was what everybody wanted out of the game. And uh, I remember what Jason wrote on his questionnaire, and it was to roll around in history like a a dog on a dead skunk. Um, And so that very much motivated like the um, the time period that Conifer is grounded in. Would you say that's about right, Jason? Or yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And uh, and it was an unusual stretch for us. We'd never uh, taken that approach. Um, to to actually like ask our friends what they wanted and then make a game that was essentially a gift for them. So when you play Conifer now, if you're playing the role of Kent, that was one of our dear friends whose needs were being met by that character. You know, they wanted to play someone who was a emotional train wreck and was poised for romantic destruction. And we gave them Kent and they were off to the races. 
but because of that, I think it's a really solid game that any group is going to be able to enjoy. So, so um, that was sort of the, the, the genesis of that. And then the history of it, uh, I, I kind of just, just kind of went nuts. Once we knew that it was going to be a game with a very particular tone and theme, I just kind of looked around and then suggested to Lizzie that we zero in on this particular event. And I think it was kind of a perverse choice because it, it's a fairly obscure event in history. And I really wanted to challenge uh, both of us to kind of dig in to something that people would maybe give a double take about. It's not sexy or romantic or cool in any way. And that appealed to me. I love your focus on like the kind of ugly and dirty and mm -hmm. very much uh, swept under the rug parts of history. You know, the parts that aren't so heroic, the parts that don't look so kindly on uh, those in power, shall we say. Uh, I, I do find that to be really admirable and really fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, and I just want to add that Jason is amazing to work with on historical games because I, I don't know, Jason, if you have like your own secret stash of sources, but you give him like two hours and he'll, when he comes up for air, uh, he's full of, you know, truly amazing <laughs> facts. I really enjoy the research piece of it and just going down these rabbit holes and, and the farther you go, the crazier it gets. And that's really fun. Absolutely. I, I can I can vouch for that as well. I'm a huge fan of doing like historical research, sometimes just for fun and sometimes specifically for a game. Uh, Jason, can I talk to you about Barbara Tuckman real quick? Yeah, sure. All right. Can you tell me your favorite Barbara Tuckman book and we can kind of go from there? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's a distant mirror. Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. I, I just want to toss that out there. I have to get, uh, before I am uh, bullied by my co-hosts, I want to get out my history stuff because I love it. Uh, please tell me and others about A Distant Mirror and why everyone should read it. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, Barbara Tuckman is a luminous author, just a brilliant, brilliant writer. So anything that they write is worth reading. Uh, and the, the history is accessible. It's vivid. Uh, it's informative. It's shocking. And A Distant Mirror is specifically about the 13th century, which was a time of tumult in, in, on a variety of different axes, which she explores very well. Uh, and so, like, if you're into fantasy, uh, my feeling is that, like, Tuckman will make you not love fantasy anymore. And I'm all for it <laughs> because real history is way more fun and interesting and bloodier and crazier than, uh, than fantasy, uh, for, from whom you know, fantasy authors steal liberally uh, anyway. Uh, that would be my pitch for that particular book. Absolutely. And another thing that Barbara Tuckman does that I uh, want to highlight here while I have the chance to, I feel like she makes things deeply personal. Like you really get to know certain people and characters. Uh, I'm thinking more specifically Guns of Autumn, but like, it, you know, throughout her work, I feel like she does a great job of personalizing history in, in, in a way that other people fail to. Yeah, I would agree with that. Great. Okay. Uh, history corner is over. My co-hosts <laughs> can come in and, uh, and, and expand this topic. I, I needed to get that out. Uh, Jason, I'm sure we could sit here for another hour and talk about stuff, but we, I'll, I'll let Courtney and Daniel kind of get over it. 
I just, um, I, I love the discussion, but I just wanted to bring us back to a little bit about game design um, because I, I wonder, um, one, do you two have different approaches when you're collaborating together? Like, are you bringing different things to the table? It sounds like um, Jason has this like back pocket of historical reality to add to the game design. And then the other question is more concrete and meant for um, our listeners, many of whom are game masters or trying to design games themselves, because you talked about wanting to make games that like inspire joy or that are just inherently fun and thinking about your friends when you're making them. Do you have concrete tips um, for designing with empathy in particular and like things you can do as a GM to, to create that kind of empathetic participatory environment? Maybe we can handle those in reverse order. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I, I have something that I, I recommend to everybody, and, and you probably already do this, but a, a really good thing to do to sort of uh, democratize your table and to make your play better is just to open things up for discussion. To to If you're the game master or the dungeon master, to occasionally just seed power and say, I don't know. I have no idea what the, what's the best thing that could possibly happen right now. Uh, I've got nothing. The five of you are smart, excited people. You're going to come up with something way better than whatever I had planned. So tell me what it is. Uh, and that's something anybody can do at any time uh, that will make your game so much better. Uh, and that will, I, I think, make your players love each other even more. And they'll love you for it. And uh, I want to piggyback off that and talk about creating an environment of trust. Um, games are or should be consensual experiences. And um, consent is the cornerstone of a good gaming experience in my mind. And that means um, that can mean building a sense of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable at the table or at the LARP. Uh, and you don't have to do this by sitting down and having a serious discussion about people's boundaries or content they don't want included in the game, which tends to backfire <laughs> often anyway. But you can sit down and, you know, tell your players. We always tell our players that the door is open, that they're here voluntarily, that it's okay to leave, that they can leave to get a drink of water and come back. Or, you know, sometimes if you can't save a game for yourself, um, it's okay to peace out entirely. Um, we also emphasize that, you know, we're here to tell a story collaboratively together. And we offer some tools for calibrating that experience. For example, a phrase or a gesture that means slow down or a way to communicate off game. You know, sometimes you are having a great but intense scene with somebody and you wonder, like, are they enjoying this? And if you can just step out of game for a second and get a yes or a no, um, that makes play better uh, as well. And I find that even just bringing up and discussing these tools creates feelings of trust among the participants, even if they're never used. And so, I, yeah, so I think that's uh, really important. And then the other thing I'd say uh, would be trying to pass around leadership roles. Like if you are facilitating for your weekly group, um, see what you can do to support one of your participants in stepping into that facilitator role and seeing uh, what it feels like. You know, you'll get a, you'll get a week off <laughs> or a month <laughs> off. Um, and it often exercises the, the muscles of your participants in ways 
um, that they didn't know they had in them. Um, Because when more people are running awesome games, we all win. We uh, and we we bake uh, some of those uh, safety guidelines into everything we do. So uh, there'll be a safety section in any game that we produce that just emphasizes to the the reader and hopefully the person who's offering that game that that we care about those things and that they should too. Obviously, it's out of our hands and we can't make anybody do anything. But if it's right there as step two in the instructions, maybe you know maybe people will try it and realize that uh, that leads to a much better experience. One last thing on, on that point that I've found that uh, is really helpful and is almost magical the way it works is just to make those assumptions. Like if I'm playing a game at a convention, when I sit down at the table or when I'm facilitating a game at a convention, I'll say, we're so lucky that we're at table 16 because here at table 16, everyone loves and trusts each other. And of course, that's that's not really true because we're, we're strangers. <laughs> But it sets an expectation and people will then rise to that mm. expectation. Uh, and it, it very rarely fails. It's, it's very satisfying. So think about love and trust and think about how you can play in a way that's respectful and safer for everybody. And uh, as Jason was just kind of pointing out, also as the facilitator, you set the tone for the group more than anybody else, probably. So mm. Uh, think about that and think about what tone you want to set, what tone's appropriate for this game and uh, how you want to relate to the other human beings that you're sitting at a table with. Yeah, you can model the behavior you want to see. Yes, yes. I think we answered the second part of your question. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But but I don't remember the first part. I mean, you guys have given such wonderful answers. I don't even care about the first part, but the first part (laughs) was um, in terms of your styles as designers, um, how do you see yourselves complementing each other, you know, when you're coming together? I am fascinated to hear what you have to say about this, Lizzie. Oh, yeah. Well, I, uh, back at you, but I'll go first (laughs) since you threw me under the bus. Um, Let's see. I think we do. We have a lot of similar skills and then we have some key differences. So for me, the most important aspect of collaborating with Jason is that we like to collaborate in the same way where we're both proactively uh, making stuff happen, taking notes. Uh, When we iterate, there are no bad ideas, even though there are totally bad. (laughs) But we just say the bad idea aloud, write it down and kind of move on. Um, So like, that's one powerful similarity. Jason is more steeped in gaming traditions than I am. He has deep, deep knowledge of tabletop that goes back like decades. Um, I found gaming later in my life and I found it explicitly through LARP. And so I think I have a lot of, um, I, I think I have like a different catalog of reference games in my head, if that makes sense. And uh, and so I think that's one way in which we complement each other. One thing that helps is that Jason's really good at layout and <laughs> and I am notoriously terrible uh, at all of that. However, I am a great copywriter. And Jason's yeah. actually a good co- quite a good copywriter. Um, but since he like he'll do the layout and I'll be uh, I'll be in the weeds editing. And it's a it's a good use of our time, you know, because we're both really good at those particular things. And then it comes back together in a very satisfying way. Yeah, you said everything I was going to say. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a real strength, though, that you don't have 30 or 40 years of background in gaming nonsense. 
because you often approach problems in ways that are really creative and sort of come from left field, whereas I am a little more hidebound, I think. And my guess is that on my own, my games would be more similar than different. Yeah, I think I'd sort of say the same thing, though. I think we're just hidebound in different traditions. Uh, so like okay. that kind of makes the the area where we meet like extra interesting. Um, we kind of have one foot planted in each of the camps. And it's it, it's true. And it's funny because we, we do have shorthand for many of these things. So we'll be like, oh, this is turning into a Nina game. Yeah. Right. Because uh, we both admire Nina Rune Essendrop's uh, design genius. Uh, and they design a very specific kind of game. Uh, so we, we have that shorthand as well of shared experience. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think another thing that makes our collaboration work is that we kind of do everything together. Like sometimes we'll do a little bit of homework, but most of the time, like, you know, we meet usually on Thursdays from two to four and um, we do all of the work in the session. So there's a sense of fun in doing the work, knowing that I have my body double on the other <laughs> Zoom call, even if we aren't actually talking at this moment. It's true. We do a lot of co-creation or we'll, we'll realize something needs to be done and I'll start at the bottom and Lizzie will start at the top. Yeah. Mm. Oh, this is great. Um, I'm I'm loving the conversations that are going on right now. Uh, one thing I, I do just want to harp on uh, that Lizzie said that I love is, you know, like not being st- and, and Jason, you you followed up too is is this idea of not being steeped in tradition. Uh, I know that Daniel and I have both had conversations about this where we love when we have a first time role player at our table yeah. because they always approach the game in such a unique and interesting way because they like like you all said they're not steeped in that tradition and mm-hmm. so they. They try and break the rules in such a fun and cool and interesting way that sometimes it's like, yes, absolutely. We want to facilitate that. We want to make sure that you're feeling engaged in that. I also wanted to say that like the idea of um, like seeding control, which in traditional games is such a thing that the GM uses to keep the narrative coherent. But what I found lately is seeding control, like at random times or as much as you can somehow makes everything more interesting because like you were saying, like the people at your table are smart and you love them and you trust them. And when you do that, like the world comes more to life because they're more a part of it. And I've found that oftentimes what play the players are far more welcoming of their own destruction if they're the creators of <laughs> yes. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. They're, far, they're way more creative about they how it. they want to do it than I would ever be. It's like, oh, that's mm-hmm. really great. Yeah, you're in that person's skin. Of course you would want to know how they destroy themselves. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, in the Nordic community, there's a play aesthetic called Playing to Lose that says that failure can be, isn't always, but it can be more interesting and fun to play than success. Absolutely. Um, So it reminds me a little bit about that. I do find that first time LARPers are often the best LARPers. Um, 100%. 100%. Yeah, because they're not doing, they're not making the typical game moves. And so they Mm -hmm. add an element of surprise. Mm -hmm. And that is what keeps things interesting. I'm reminded of something somebody told me after one of my first small chamber LARP, which is the first cut bleeds the deepest, meaning that you have kind of the most, uh, you have some of your best experiences the first time um, if you're able to get the, you know, the magic right in a LARP. 
And one of my favorite Rod Stewart songs as well. Absolutely. First cut. Oh, is it? Do we have like a minute to talk about Bleed really quickly? Because I feel like in the um, only ARP I've done, the only formal LARP I've done with you, Lizzie, like I remember I there's the part where the cult kind of is taking over people. And so you switch sides and the other people who are in the experience don't necessarily know and I remember being turned into a cult member and it was Sarah, I think, who was like in my immediate party. And I remember her feeling like genuinely betrayed at the end of it because <laughs> understanding that I was a cult mm. member. And I also felt like genuine guilt being a cult member. And so I wonder like, what do you have to say about bleed? And is it more intense than a LARP in your experience or is it different? Uh, I'd be curious about the hesitation. You have so much more experience in stuff like that. Well, bleed is like a, is a big question. It's the question that launched like a million PhD theses. Um, <laughs> but I think that the more intense the experience, the more likely bleed is. You know, our brains know that we are only experiencing something fictional, but because it's embodied, it feels real to the body. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes some time. And I think you know, that's another reason to have, you know, calibration rules and safety rules at the table, because the best way to manage those feelings is often, not always, to be able to talk about them. You know, I don't know, were you able to talk with Sarah about it afterwards and say like, hey, <laughs> hey, I'm sorry, I joined an oh, cult and stabbed you. you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think like there was any like residual effect, but it was like in the moment you could tell we both were like, what? You're actually part of the cult, that kind of feeling yeah. where it's like you genuinely felt it. And as I was the cult member, it's like there's a genuine regret that you're betraying them, you're misleading them. Hey, for the benefit of your listeners, maybe we should define bleed. That's a good yeah, idea. Yeah, that would help. Why don't you? <laughs> yeah. Can you? Uh, I'd be happy to. So bleed is uh, when emotions or emotional states get transferred between a player and their character or vice versa. So a good example of that, uh, anecdotally from my experience is that I was at a, I was at a big hundred person LARP and I was assigned to play a, an evil villain and 99 other people in that LARP hated me for an entire weekend. Uh, and it was, it was devastating, right? It made me feel bad. And those people didn't hate me in real life, but just the, the you know, it was embodied, right? It was visceral for two straight days. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to, uh, to deal with that bleed. That's, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a good definition and example. Yeah. And when you said like the first cut is the deepest, it just like, I can always remember that experience because it was so mm -hmm. like, you know, it was so memorable because it was the first time we did that. Yeah, it's surprising and powerful, and um, it is something that a lot of people really like uh, in gameplay. One one word for them is bleed hunter, um, and I was a bleed hunter about 10 years ago, and then I had a really intense experience playing oh. uh, Torjettle Edlund's Say a Little Prayer, which is like a for our experience about the summer AIDS came to New York City. And I felt um, I felt devastated afterwards. Mm. It was definitely the experience I had signed up for. Um, I felt like I got a lot of um, insight out of that experience. But since then, I haven't really wanted to go out courting bleed anymore. I feel like I kind of reached the bleed 
pinnacle. And now I'm ready to experience something different. Yeah, I've I've definitely experienced that in in games and and that sort of thing where you just get so emotionally invested and with like a movie or a book you can hit pause you can kind of close the book walk away like take a breather but when you're in a game with other people it's just so difficult to to step back in the moment even as you like kind of remind yourself mentally this is you know just a a make-believe experience I think it's important to remember that it can be positive or mm-hmm, negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often yeah. framed as a negative thing, but it absolutely can be wonderful and yeah. a really, uh, a really powerful and pleasant uh, experience to have as well. Oh, and maybe we should uh, mention Janea Kemper's theory of emancipatory bleed, um, which talks about how people from marginalized intersections can design um, bleed for themselves in play experiences to be empowering. Um, and I'll dig up a, a link for that. Maybe you can include it in the show notes for anybody who wants to read more. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, one thing I, I would love, as long as we're talking about bleed, uh, Lizzie, I know that you wrote an essay that talks a lot about, um, the theatrical experience and, uh, the, how that relates to catharsis. And I would love for you to talk about, uh, your experience with catharsis, both in a theatrical experience and how that is approached in like LARPing, what the differences might be uh, between catharsis and bleed, if you could talk about that for a little bit. Ooh, okay. Um, catharsis. Well, let's start with what catharsis is. I'm looking it up because I think it's the process of relating and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions, says Google. So, um, you know, when you watch a piece of theater and the main character dies, you feel sympathy for the main character. Um, and that sympathy kind of purges you of the feeling, uh, purges you of the feeling in your own life. You feel like a light sense of hope, you know, kind of like the way, the way you feel great after a, uh, a big cry. Sometimes it's a relief to like, Purge the emotions. I mean, to me, that's what catharsis is, and uh, I don't think that bleed and cathar- bleed and catharsis are related. I would say, um, but in bleed, you are getting it directly by experiencing the emotions of the character rather than by watching or witnessing something secondhand. And as your character, you'll have some kind of perspective on the events um, at hand. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Uh, Partially, but I feel like we could have a much longer, deeper conversation about that. Uh, But maybe some other time, I would think. Yeah. I I think where we are right now, though, is a good place for us to transition into our world building jam. How does that sound to everyone else? Sounds Mm -hmm. great. I love it. (laughs) All right. Uh, for the new people who have never heard us before, what we're about to do is roll some dice to create a scenario that we're going to collaboratively build uh, on the fly. It is one of the most fun parts, probably the most fun part of the podcast, and we're going to roll some dice and see what happens. Ooh, the suspense. (laughs) So much, so much suspense. What will our fates be? All right, so 
the the first thing that we roll for is the genre. We have 20 different genres of various types. So we're going to start with the first die roll, which is... Okay, so we've got Space Western as our first genre. Next, we're going to roll the theme of the scenario that we're going to be building, which is going to be pain. And finally, oh the first thing that we're going to be focusing on within the scenario is someone really important to the setting that almost no one knows about. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, as our guests, Lizzie and Jason, you're obviously on the uh, on the hook to start us off here. So please, by all means. Well, when I think of Westerns, I think about um, I, I think of the, the sort of dark side of, of Westerns, which is uh, genocide, uh, the destruction of cultures, mm. um, imperialism, colonialism. Right. Yeah, that's 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 immediately where I go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so someone no one knows about are the people that are on the other side of that. Oh, I love that. Right. The people yeah. who are being colonized, uh, b- their cultures being destroyed, being mm-hmm. assimilated mm-hmm. Uh, by the, uh, you know, westward ho expansion mm-hmm. of a dominant culture. Um, but I do want to say that we are in space. So uh, probably we're talking about the colonization of a planet. Love it. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, we can we can have uh, Cormac McCarthy in space, though. I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> I was going to say, this. we got Blood Meridian, the RPG going on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, space Blood Meridian, to be mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully with more women characters, though. <laughs> <laughs> I have some feelings about Cormac McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, <laughs> there's a lot to say about that, but you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, so uh, Lizzie, why don't you get to start us off then, if, if that's the case. We're focusing on a marginalized group of space people here. Where do we want to go with it and how do we want to approach this? Where do we want to go with it? Well, I think we should give the um, the marginalized people a like a profession or something that they're doing. On the planet where they are, I'm envisioning um, that we're on like a gold planet. Oh. Mm. And that... There are uh, camps of aliens who have arrived to extract the natural resources. Maybe not gold. That's kind of pedestrian. Maybe like um, space gold. Space gold. Dreams. Yeah. Unobtainium, maybe. Unobtainium. <laughs> yes. Hey, uh, just a, sort of riffing on that and mm. thinking about empathy. What if it's uh, what if it's the last remnants of humanity that are mm. the that are the mm. others in this setting? They're the oh, ones that we are yes. portraying and then get, getting. Uh, Absolutely. Colonized or dominated. Yep. Yeah, we've mm-hmm. destroyed our own planet. Yep. I like that. I would also suggest that um, we substitute like a material resource with something f- stranger. Like, could it be memories or dreams mm-hmm. or something like that is strictly related to the people themselves? Oh, I love it. Yeah, that is cool. Maybe like fantasy. I like dreams or fantasies mm-hmm. or uh, mm-hmm. abstract concepts. Yeah. For example, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Let's do dreams. Okay. Yeah. I, I have this kind of concept in mind uh, as we're talking about this. Do uh, do any of you know what Sarah de Potosi is? Uh, it's in the Amazon. It was known as like a mountain of silver. It was essentially a, a cause of immense pain and, and horrible. L- look it up if you're interested but is essentially a mountain of silver that the Portuguese forced the natives to 
essentially a, a strip mine and, and caused a small genocide as a result. I, I would love to tell the miners story. So if we could do like the miners of dreams of some kind in this particular setting, I think that'd be really interesting. Is there something valuable in the, if this is a sort of depleted earth, is there something that these aliens find valuable uh, that's unique to humanity? In our dreams? Hmm. Like, like how is that uh why is that a valuable resource to them? Maybe they can't, um, they're as a, as a species incapable of um, having creative thoughts. Like their thoughts mm. are strictly rational and we're capable of that in our dreams. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And it's very relaxing um, for these rules bound aliens to, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to kind of let, let the veil mm. of reality yeah. move off of them. Yeah, so it's almost like a it's almost like more of a tourism thing than a like mm. actively stripping resources. Like they see it as sort of a benign visitation, but what they're really doing is is very harmful. Oh, I love that. And why is it harmful? Does it does it leave us apathetic mm. in the end in some way? Well, if the theme is pain, I mean like it oh, might not painful. be <laughs> physical pain. No, it might not be physical <laughs> pain, but it's like the ache you know, like the ache oh. of loss that you're emotionally feeling on a consistent level, you know, like the idea that you're losing mm. your dreams in some way is, is somehow painful. Yeah, maybe you lose the dream, like when they yeah. when they use it, you know. So it's a consumption model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, they're, uh, they're devouring our dreams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literal commodification of the person as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man. This mm-hmm. is an amazing metaphor for capitalism. <laughs> yeah. That's never happened on this show before. Never. <laughs> I love that you guys flipped it, that you made the, the humans the exploited because then it's like mm-hmm. more personal to us. Because if it were yeah. like we're stealing dreams from aliens, we wouldn't have the same level of empathy. I think. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Yeah. Which is terrible, but true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as a as a human being, you have at least in the in the short term the opportunity to move away from the frontier to get away from the the people who are who want to exploit you, mm-hmm. but uh, that can't last forever. Mm-hmm. But you also have the opportunity to sell your goods to them, right? You have something yeah. that's a valuable commodity, mm-hmm. but it's it's ultimately very harmful to you and to your society. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that means there's a division too in those in the human group, like those who are trying to work with these aliens and those who are trying to get away. Yep. Mm-hmm. The collaborators or the people who are mm-hmm. like willing to um, give up what they hold dear. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking like the desperate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That what what would it take for you to give up your dreams? And maybe wow. like the first dream, you know, is easy to give away. But the hundredth oh, dream yeah. as your supply mm-hmm. is pleading is a lot harder. Oh man. Just as you say that chills, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Increased desperation as well. Like there's a lot of great, you know, kind of thematic stuff you can explore within that. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's the substance abuse metaphor as well. Yep. Maybe maybe as you start to lose your dreams, they get less vivid, mm-hmm. uh, less dynamic. Uh, so you need to, you know, the, the, they're worth less to the people buying them oh, and you have to yeah. give them more. Wow. Yeah, I imagine there would be potential for actual substance abuse too to like um, trigger more visions of that sort, to trigger more dreams, and you end up with people who are in just desperation, like shoveling down substances to to create more of this stuff, both for them and so they can provide it to these these visitors. 
Oh, that's awful. I know. Yeah, I love it. I love it. You should be ashamed. I know. It's it's me in like half of these these episodes. I just come up with awful things. Yeah, that's kind of Courtney's kind of, that's her niche that she's carved out. She's the button for it. You're welcome at my table anytime. (laughs) What if, Um, um, what if just talking, going further with the substance uh, stuff too, like I'm, I'm wondering how the dreams are consumed. Um, are the dreams themselves used to manufacture one of these drugs? Like what is, I'm interested in what that whole process looks oh, like. I like that. It's like distilled into a drug. Mm. Well, before we answer that, I think that we should probably ask the twist list because now that oh, we know there's a twist list. A twist list. Yes. So yeah, there, so now we have a giant list of twists that we can now throw in and it could be anything from it being really disturbing anime or, or just a bunch of other stuff. This is great. So we're going to roll the die and see what our twist is. Please don't be the anime prompt. Anything with the anime. Oh, God. <laughs> so our twist for this particular setting Oh boy, is oh no, what is it? The setting so far is just a small work of art within the world. Uh, <laughs> so that is a very strange one, but considering what we're working with, I love the idea that maybe that is the the way that these dreams are consumed, is that these people are forced into a work of art. Maybe they're forced to be players in, in a theater or something like that. And through their acting, that's how they express their dreams that are then consumed by these alien colonizers. So there's actually a sort of ritual performative component to it. Exactly. Mm. Yes. I think that the work of art may be suffering. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That there's some kind of higher power where what they, what they really like is to watch suffering. And that's how they extract the dream. Yeah. This is a little bit close to the movie Martyrs, which is, uh, <laughs> I love this. Like, I'm, I'm so in on this, but oh, geez. Wow. And so how, I'm just curious now, if we reify this, like, how is the ritual, there's the, the suffering generates the dream, right? That's how they do it. But how is the, what is the ritual like? Like, what is, or do we need to define that? Well, I think that what we also would do well in doing is is defining what our main conflict is. I mean, is it is it humanity's struggle against the colonizer or is it simply the ability to survive? I mean, like that's kind of the struggle or the conflict that I'm interested in. Is there a fatalism to humanity's last existence or is it a matter of we can rise above this pain to, to free ourselves from these colonizers? Frankly, I think that's the boring option. I think that I, I think yeah. that if we want to follow the kind of game design elements that we were talking about previously, playing to lose sounds a lot more interesting in this mm. scenario. Well, I'm just asking, like, is the work of art a metaphorical thing or is it a literal thing? That's what I'm trying to understand. I'd like to call it literal, like we can really make it a physical act that happens within the world. So you like you go to the theater to sell your dreams. Mm-hmm kind of thing mm-hmm. like you're going to perform yeah. and that performance is going to be painful and traumatic and you will lose your dreams in the process yes and there's mm-hmm. a bunch of aliens that are going to consume that in real time yeah, yeah. absolutely okay. yeah Ugh. there's probably some kind of um diversified market for different kinds of dreams like some people will want the um i mean 
when we talk about dreams, are we talking about hopes for the future or are we talking about literally like the things that I have at night when I go to sleep? Yes. Because I can imagine either. Both. <laughs> I'm going to say yes as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's going to be like a group of aliens who's like, you know, who all, all they want to see is um, naked at school or workplace dreams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. The tooth, the tooth falling out crew. Oh, okay. Yes, the yeah. tooth falling out crew. There's going to be somebody who only wants to see um, uh, dreams of financial success. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah. So there could be like niche markets too. But yeah. I bet you, since this is a also like a tourist draw, if there are real, real basic aliens who don't have a lot of range and mm-hmm. just want to see things get hurt, because that's the only thing that registers yeah. for them. Yeah. Right. And they're trying to solve their own innate problem, which is that they're not, they can't be creative. So in witnessing these things, it's, it's helping them. So in, from their perspective, they're trying to improve themselves. (laughs) Right. But at the same time, these are beings that literally become creative by absorbing the suffering of others. Now, Again, this is becoming a more and more apt uh, metaphor for capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we could also talk about like this, the hyper specificity of these aliens, I mean, why can't we have it? So each individual painful experience is, uh, I mean, it's individualized, you know, it's a matter of probing into that person's consciousness and they ramp up the level of pain that they experience. So yeah, the first mm-hmm. thing you experience maybe you're naked at school and then six or seven trips down the line, you're living out this ghastly, emotionally gutting experience of losing your family or losing some kind something that's way more important. And that's what the real gourmet shit is to these aliens. You know, it could almost be like um, evil hypnotists in a way are the aliens like they're, mm. they're sort of delving into your mind to oh. look for exactly what they're seeking out and like bring mm. out the bad shit. What if you what if you have clients? What if it's sort of a prostitution mm-hmm. model? Yes. Yeah. I was thinking oh, yes. that as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I could see that. And like if you have a, a kind client, they're gonna be cool. If you have an unkind client, they're gonna push real hard. Yeah. Oh, that's I'm getting severance yeah. vibes, that weird show. But maybe also the things are flipped. So like it is cruel to take a beautiful memory away from me. Mm. It is kind to take the nightmare away from me. Uh, is it though? I mean, th- that's a fun. That's a fun philosophical argument yeah. Yeah. To, to have in play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what I think you're pointing at is that we need some dimension among the aliens because right now we're painting them as kind of totally rationally evil, and I feel like that's too one-dimensional. Like maybe yeah. there is something that they're doing that does help humanity. This just like in the sense that capitalism as a construct does improve things it just also destroys things so like what what do they well, do well why don't we take that and and we offer it we their excuse is well that's their choice to give their nightmares mm-hmm. and dreams to me mm-hmm. you know like i'm offering them this thing and as a result like it's not my fault that they chose to do this you know like the compulsory aspect adds into that thematic layer as well i think hi yeah I'm wondering, um, we've made a really dark reality that mirrors our own reality in a lot of ways or aspects Mm -hmm. of our own reality. And, um, you know, we screwed it up. The U.S. screwed this up (laughs) badly, royally. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering, like, this could also be a place for us to try to imagine what 
uh, better alternative would be. What's the uh, alien version of Denmark in this case? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are people who have made a different arrangement. They have a different deal, you know, that, that kind of works better for everybody. Oh, they found a faction of the aliens. Yeah, like a, a more sustainable kind of thing. Like right. we've got like the clear cutters who are just like going through rampaging, taking out everybody's dreams. But we mm-hmm. have ones that are sort of more responsible about it in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah, for forming a partnership. Yeah. yeah. Well, remember that the, the genre is space Western. So like maybe we can find that within the genre that we're working mm-hmm. with here is within that Western oeuvre or space Western oeuvre, you know? Ooh, I'm not sure there was a Western analog that was not brutal and rapacious. You might have to to pick out um, our romantic notions of it yeah. rather than mm-hmm. the historical ones, because like there's the view of the Western as historical reality, but then there's the view of the Western as our romantic notions about it. So maybe there's like some concept we can draw on, like you know, the noble sheriff or something that parallels that, and you can use in this this context too. Yeah, what's the um what's the resistance look like? Mm. What is the resistance in a western? I mean, it entirely depends on the western that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um but usually other uh shitheads. Yeah, yeah, yeah unfortunately <laughs> true. Some yeah. class of shitheads that are more mm-hmm. interesting than the others for the screen time. <laughs> I mean, well, what it often is is the repentant hero, you know, it's the one mm-hmm. it's the good version of the colonizer, you know, which I think here is not necessarily what uh, oh, okay. what I would see here in this setting is like an alien who recognizes yeah. the pain that they're inflicting and then tries to save it and then ultimately fails. An alien who's been changed by the process of extracting these memories and actually feels the suffering for once. And now they are conflicted. And so they have decided to side with this faction that's trying to create a sustainable situation, but they're at odds with the rest of their culture. I think that's possibly the good alien, you know, quote unquote. And the the nice thing about that is that they still need the creativity juice. They got to get it somewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if they're on the side of good, they need to do the bad thing or yeah. they can't function. Absolutely. And then they know depleting all the dreams will just kill everyone and it will solve nothing. Right. It'll kill all the humans, but who cares? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's true, yeah. Next planet. All right. All right. All right. I feel like we're at a good stopping point. I mean, we could literally <laughs> go for a while after this, but I feel like we do inevitably need to stop the podcast and we still have our rapid fire questions to get to. So, Without further ado, is there anything else that we need to talk about before we transition over to rapid fire questions? That was really fun. I would play that. Yeah. Yes. Same. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so without further ado, no one's ever ready for the rapid fire question. So I'm just going to get right into it. Except us. We're ready. Lizzie and Jason, my wife wants to know, is cereal a soup? No. No. Yes. <laughs> More uh, for me. Okay. Uh, I would love to know what you're both playing uh, recently or at the moment. Uh, I'm playing a bespoke game about uh, Imperial Succession that I designed in and play testing. Ooh, cool. Ooh, that sounds very fun. I am a kid parent, so I am playing uh, Capitalism's um, Cage for Your Eyeballs, <laughs> which is wow. a mobile game based on RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. It is 
terrible and addictive. <laughs> I mean, the game design is objectively bad but addictive and it's mm-hmm. designed to make me watch as many ads as possible. <laughs> it's yeah predatory game design absolutely yes predatory gaming design that's a good term for it yeah uh when are you coming out with your own predatory game so we can all be addicted and uh and and you know learn at the same time that's my next question not a real question uh my next question is actually going to be uh I would love to hear about someone who are not yourselves that you would love to shout out in this context. Some, someone who you don't think gets enough love in the space, around the space, wherever, that you would love to see get a little bit more shout outs. So many people. Um, love to shout out uh, Hakan Sealioglu and Kate Himes of 30 Games who make uh, amazing tabletop and LARP games about language. Uh, that was an easy one. Ha. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's tons of people that are doing good work. Uh, Ross Cowman, I guess Fall of Magic doesn't count as a game that people don't know, but it's a beautiful game and Ross is a beautiful person doing cool stuff. Um, how about... John uh, Shim? Yeah. Yes, John uh, Shim making great solo journaling games. Um, and other lyric game experiences. How about Julian Kim too, who makes a lot of, uh, they've been making a lot of interesting games about um, sex and other things. <laughs> hmm. Daniel and Courtney, I'm opening the floor to you guys. Rapid fire questions, by all means, hit them up. Uh, what are you reading right now? And would you recommend it? I just finished a book by... Um... Uh, his last name is Christmas. It's called Swim Team. It's a middle grade graphic novel, and it's absolutely brilliant. It uh, combines uh, a sports hero story with a deep family drama and a history of American systemic racism, all for fifth graders. It's amazing. Wow. It's a lot to pack into one. Yeah, yeah, it's super impressive. And uh, I have been reading nothing but books about eggs um, <laughs> for my own research. But uh, this week I started an annotated uh, Mrs. Dalloway because um, I, I think I'm going to make a game adaptation uh, of the novel. Oh, very but nice. oh, wow. my toddler has only let me read through half of the introduction. So mm. we'll see. <laughs> that's I mean, to be fair, that that's totally acceptable. I mean, toddler or not, you know. Seriously, Lizzie's Facebook feed has been eggs for the past, like, two years, I think. It's, like, a lot of eggs. Can confirm. That's so many. That's so many So many things I learned. (laughs) (laughs) My rapid-fire question for you both is, what is the weirdest character concept you've you've designed and played? Ooh. Ooh. Oh. Define weird. I don't know. No, I refuse to. (laughs) It wouldn't be rapid-fire otherwise. Mm-hmm. Okay, the weirdest game concept I've played is probably I played um oh character character concept. Oh, character concept. Hey, let's let's just talk about our characters in Sarabond. Oh, yeah. Great. So, Sarabond is a game uh by uh Maria and Yeppe Bergman Hemming. It's kind of a dancey black box LARP about artists in the Moon Martra. Um I played a protest clown. <laughs> Oh, and I was a rebel firebrand socialist. Wow. <laughs> nice. I love that. Yeah, but what are you playing in the game? 
Oh, well, I got I got real friends to um, draw dicks on themselves in a sharpie. Oh wow, my. that's awesome! It was, it was quite a game. Amazing. It was quite a game. I that's didn't amazing. know I had it in me. All right, uh, and uh, the final question is: Where can people find you on the internet or elsewhere? Sure. Uh, well, uh, sixofhounds.itch.io is where a lot of the games we talked about are. Mm-hmm. Uh, my company is Bully Pulpit Games, so bullypulpitgames.com. And I'm at lizzystark.com. Excellent. I would once again love to thank both of you for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all I got. I, I'm just starstruck. Thank you so much. Oh, this is really fun. Thank you. Yeah, really enjoyable. And we're back. Uh, what a fantastic interview. There were so many concepts and uh, uh, thoughts and, and, and everything that I was just so deeply excited about. Uh, Daniel, why don't you get us started off? What was some of your favorite talking points that we got to today? I think um, it's something that we don't get to see a lot unless we're like you're deeply enmeshed in like the really indie fringe scene are games like GMless games and games oh, yeah. that do really mm-hmm. weird mm-hmm. stuff. And so um, I love the takeaway that, you know, what's applicable to learn from those sort of games is seeding control and having yep. an empathetic design philosophy or um, at least play philosophy as a GM it will help a get your players more invested and make them create a more more interesting experience and i think that's something even in the most um gm authority focused game like that's a huge thing because it helps you if by seating control you're actually making things stronger which seems contradictory oh yeah but it works yeah. you know mm-hmm. I, I i could not agree more i think that that is certainly something that i strive for and it's certainly something that i feel makes me a better gm as i continue to try and do it is creating engagement and buy-in, increasing buy-in rather, by allowing the players just feel like they're more involved, more more creative control on the player's part. Uh, And and I I love the concept, and I'm not sure if my personality will allow it, to run a GM-less game or run a, a more egalitarian game. It's something that I would love to try out for sure, though. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm very interested in checking that sort of thing out. And I really loved that they touched on sort of the emotional intensity that can happen in games mm. and how how to handle that, how to make sure people are comfortable and know when to sort of step back and yeah. take a breather and also examine like why those feelings are coming up. I think that's really important mm. to do in, in RPGs. Yeah, I, I think that's something that's really great and is somewhat unique to the RPG space because it, it like you were saying in the interview, Courtney, you know, like, because there are other people involved, you can't pause the, or you, you can pause a movie. You can p- mm-hmm. press pause in a video game. You can step away from these things. But when you're in a cage of emotion <laughs> with other people, there it, it is much harder to disengage yourself from that. Yeah. So I think that being confronted with those emotions, whether you want to or not, I mean, I think that it, it's, it's, I, I, I don't want to say that it's forced, but I feel like you're forced to confront something in a way that I think, allows for that kind of deeper understanding and, and deeper kind of uh, engagement with those emotions that you would have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, also in the interview, uh, there is a correction on my end. I apologize. Uh, I said that it was Sierra de Potosi that is not correct. It is Sierra de Plata, which is uh, in uh, Brazil. Check it out. Uh, if you want to feel sad about things and you want to know more about 
the exploitation of native Brazilians and for their silver. Um, well, I love feeling sad about things. So I'm definitely going to check that's that out. <laughs> accurate as well. Uh, I, I do. I do appreciate that you have found a kindred spirit in Lizzie Stark when she said, yes. what was it? Uh, the work of art is suffering in court. I could feel Courtney be like, I, I was oh, just like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, uh, that was, that was so great. Um, I, I suppose that's the end of the episode. A big, big thank you to uh, Lizzie Stark and Jason Morningstar for joining us today. Uh, there will be link to, to their stuff. If you want to go support them, please do. Uh, there's going to be a link for that in the description of the episode as well. And with all of that, remember that if you want us to build your world, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, follow the link and the instructions. And within a reasonable amount of time, we'll be building your world on the podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, we are over at Let's World Build on Twitter. If you want to come join our Discord, there's a link for that in the description. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can give us money over on Patreon with a link for that in the description as well. Of course, uh, that will do it for this episode of World Build with us. Remember that we love you very much. We're going to get through this together until next week. Mm-hmm.